I want you to picture as we start this morning, a picture of the game King of the Hill, not the board game, I'll show that in just a second, but the, the game King of the Hill, not the TV show on Fox, it's really bad uh, in the genre of the Simpsons family, but uh, King of the Hill, the game that you played on a hillside, uh, some type of a structure, uh, if, if you're not from Mississippi, maybe it was a mountain somewhere, we just call them hills around here, right? But uh, you play King of the Hill, and the goal is very simple, and I think why, that's why the game has been so popular where the goal is to ascend to the top of the hill, and maybe the hardest part is to remain at the top of the hill. And if you can get there and remain there, you are the king of the hill. But down below you, all the little peons, they're your rivals, and their goal is to ascend to the top and to pluck you down. And the schoolyard game, the ones I played at school, you could push the king of the hill off the hill. Uh, They did not allow punching and kicking. But the backyard uh, games that we played, that we did allow punching and, fo- punching and kicking, we went full MMA. We were doing arm bars and sucker punches, getting them from behind, the Boston Crab, all kind of things to get that guy off the top of the hill. It's a simple game with a simple purpose to be at the top. I want you to think of King of the Hill. Now, there's the board game. Uh, here you see a little boy and a little girl, starry-eyed wonder, looking at their new gift uh, called King of the Hill. And they're just spellbound by the magic of the kingdom. But you can see in their little eyes, uh, their little selfish, greedy eyes, that they want to be at the top of it. How can you become powerful? How can you keep your power? How can you, well, they don't know this yet, but how can you keep power from corrupting you? We're going to look at that um, today. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. I would love for you to turn there, Philippians 2. I'm going to turn there my Bible uh, as well. And uh, we've looked at the big question is... um, how does happiness happen? In week one, we talk, talked about four ways to miss happy from chapter one. We said you can wait around for it, or you can compare yourself with other people, or you can go at it alone, or you can just adopt or embrace pessimism as your sort of default mode uh, to life. Last week, we looked at how happy people are grateful people. Paul said, I thank my God in my remembrance of you. Remember, this is a letter written at the end of his life. It's a thank you note. written to friends with warmth and joy. He's filled with joy. Last week we said there's uh, that happy people are grateful people and that gratitude is the ability to experience all of life as a gift and that gratitude is the gift that allows us to enjoy all other gifts including Philippians 129 the hardship and the suffering and then we said that without gratitude I think we got a few amens without gratitude that our lives deteriorate into envy dissatisfaction and complaining and we dropped Daniel gave me too much credit I just stole it from Paul Philippians 2 14 he says do all things without complaining and I gave you that challenge last week and asked you to go 24 hours it was a homework assignment and I was really surprised sometimes I just think y'all are sleeping on me or you're just like weekend at Bernie's kind of propped up there uh, not really um, listening but you some of you listened and you took that assignment to heart and you attempted to go 24 hours uh, without complaining I talked in my men's group on Friday morning there's a difference between grumbling and groaning and grumbling is a uh, it's we're not to do it it's the same thing as complaining but groaning is a virtue in the bible both old and new groaning is us one writer put it this way uh, groaning is uh, talking to god but grumbling is talking about god groaning is going to god and telling him when it hurts and uh, just pouring your life out to him can i tell you you get a green light to do that but groaning is when you go talk about God and you're complaining. So the challenge of Philippians 2.14, some of you took us up on it, do all things without 
complaining and there's a promise attached to it that you will shine as as bright lights amidst a crooked and perverse generation now 24 hours is not enough time to see that promise fulfilled but you keep that going and you have less and less complaining and more and more gratitude and more and more joy you will stand out and you will point other people uh, to the happiness that Paul talks about here in Philippians 2 so let's uh Let's jump into Philippians 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. If you have an open Bible, it would be a good day to open it and look at it. If not, we're having it on the screen for you guys. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. If then there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not for his own own interest, but also for the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 1 to 11, may God bless this as we hear it and dig into it. A couple of cautions here just for our understanding. Paul says if, he gives four ifs, and for us when we say if, if you give one if, two ifs, three ifs, four ifs, there's probably a lot of uncertainty. If you, if you rattle off four ifs, you're probably uncertain about something. If this, if this, if this, you're just not sure if it's going to happen. This is different. In fact, Greek scholars, as they dig into the language, they call this a, a first-class condition. And what they, let me just illustrate that. Uh, if, like years ago, I were to look at uh, one of my kids and I, if I were to say, if I'm your father, if I'm your son, um, if you get an allowance, if I'm the head of the household, go clean your room. Those are first-class conditions. Uh, I'm not uh, assuming, I'm, I'm rather, I'm not um, unsure of those things. I'm assuming that they are true, and I'm assuming that he hears it in my statement and the tone of my voice. If you're my, fa- if you're my son, if I am your father, if you get an allowance, right? If I'm the head of this household, go clean your room. And Paul is saying that here, even though he says if, again, he's assuming that these are true because we do have encouragement in Christ. We do have a consolation of love. We do have fellowship with the Spirit. We do have affection and mercy. He's saying these things are true and because these things are true, make my joy complete. I can't help but think that Paul is thinking of Jesus in John 15 where Jesus tells his disciples, I'm teaching you all these things. This ought to, We had to drop this truth on a series about happiness. I'm teaching you all these things so that your joy may be full, that you would have joy, that that joy would be complete. And that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, make my joy complete. These things are true. Make my joy complete. And he says in here uh, to think the same way to have the same mind, to be united in spirit, to be intent on one purpose. Now stop for a second. Does that kind of creep anybody out? Just think about that. 
thinking the same thoughts. Like, I mean, I'm in my head. If you were in my head, you wouldn't want to be in my head. You wouldn't want to think my thoughts, would you? I wouldn't want to think your thoughts. I mean, look around the room. Look at some people next to you. Look at the person you came with. Look at the weird person uh, two rows over. Like, is that the goal that we would think the same thoughts? Like, don't sign me up for that. I don't, I don't want that. But he's saying uh, it's just different language. But here's, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that we should agree on all the issues. He's, because uh, we're never going to get there, by the way. We would have no forward progress if the goal was to agree on all the issues. Uh, he is saying that we should agree on the supremacy of Jesus and the essentials of our faith. But he's not saying agree on everything. And he's also not saying suppress your individuality, which is sort of what, on the surface, that's what it seems. I think the same thoughts. Well, no. It's, it's not, it doesn't mean suppress your individuality. You are who you are and you have preferences and tastes and opinions and gifts and you got your stuff, man. And I, I think in so many ways, the scripture affirms the uniqueness of the individual. So this isn't conformity in a cult-like way, but what he is calling for is harmony. He's saying, don't be a quarrelsome person. Don't stir the pot. In Proverbs 6, it says, there's seven things the Lord hates and one of them is the person who sows discord. And you could be that person. And if that's you today, then you're struggling with happiness. If you go into a church or go into a group or go into your family and you're there to stir the pot, you find out what's wrong or you, you find out where the points of uncertainty are or disagreement and you stir that and speak with loudness and bravado and such, then you're sowing discord and God hates that. And by the way, it doesn't stem from, from happiness. So Paul is writing and he's saying... If these things are true, by the way they are, then make my joy complete by living in this way. Now, verses 5 through 11, I want to tell you, is a song. It's actually a hymn. So Paul, I say this playfully, Paul's plagiarized from somebody. He's exalting Jesus Christ. Now, the last couple of verses, I said this in the 930, you know, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Can I just say, some of y'all use that in a militant way. Let me just say stop, okay? Just stop. This is a, a, a call to worship. It's a call for us to, to speak of, to sing of the goodness of, uh, of God, the greatness of Jesus Christ, the one that we love, the one that we serve, the one that we find our completeness in. It's not to be a militant, uh, angry bomb from the Bible that we use against people in a hateful way. But here is this song now in, in our day. I'll just say these out, Emmy, don't worry about playing them. But in our day, uh, songs are, we value songs, of course, based on how they sound. But the, the, in terms of the lyrics, the songs we listen to are rhyming songs. So think about that. The songs you like, I don't know if, if one big song comes to mind, but the songs that we like, most of them are uh, rhyming songs. Susan and I went to the beach this week, which is uh, five and a half hours in the car there and five and a half hours in the car back for her to listen to me scan the radio at high volume and just sing out loud to songs that I don't, and she'll tell you, I don't even have to know the words to, to sing. But uh, here's a couple of songs that I played at least uh, seven times. Uh, Post Malone, I Like You A Lot. Y'all know this one? I like you a lot. I want to be your friend, go shopping in the bins. I like you. I do. We went over to France and woke up in Japan. I like you. I do. See, see what Post Malone's doing? He's rhyming friend with bins, France with Japan. And uh, so all of our songs must rhyme. How about this one from Jelly Roll? Uh, Jelly Rolls has a song. I love this song, by the way, Son of a Sinner. He says, I'm a long-haired sinner searching for new ways I can get gone. I'm a pedal to the highway if you ever wonder why I write these songs. He's rhyming, by the way, Jelly I just want to say Jelly Roll in church. 
Post Malone, Jelly Roll, whatever songs you listen to, I guarantee you uh, they rhyme. But this is a song and it's a hymn and it's not built on any pithy rhymes or easy to remember statements. They valued more than rhyming, they valued symmetry. So in this song, just dropping some um, Bible knowledge on you, in this song, there's 19 lines. And the first section is nine lines. The second section is nine lines. Those of you quick in math, you know something's missing. Well, that's the middle part. And they would value the, the main point was put in the middle. It was put in the middle of the song or the hymn. And so in this, just calling your attention to it, the middle part of this song is these words, even death on a cross. Are you thinking about, remember I started this sermon by asking you to think about playing King of the Hill? But here Paul is saying the main idea is not a king of the hill thing. For those of you who are searching for happy, it's not being on the top. In fact, I want you to consider this song and I want you to consider even death on a cross. This was written to, um, to the folks in, in Philippi. And um, in this, this culture that it was written to, um, there was a hierarchy that existed. Now, as I teach this for just a couple of minutes, I want you to decide if we have any of this in our day in America, certainly in other countries, but you think about the truth in, in uh, contemporary times. But there was a hierarchy. In fact, uh, here's, um, here's, the, here's Philippi on the map. They've already thrown it up. You see it in the north. You see Macedonia there. It's just to the right of it, right below it. And Philippi, I've taught you, uh, is a Roman colony. It was a military outpost. Um, Timothy and Paul, Luke and Silas came there and about 11 years later is when Paul writes back. That's what Paul would do. He would travel. It's kind of cool. He would travel over this part of the world in places like modern-day Turkey, modern-day France, and then he would establish churches with men and women like this church got started by a woman named Lydia in her household. She was an influential, a wealthy woman, and she won her faith to Christ. Paul preached, and she said, uh, I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, and then God used Lydia and her household uh, to reach this city. It was the first congregation in that part of the world. Well, Paul would write back. So we have 13 letters in our Bible inspired for us today of Paul writing back to these early churches, telling them more and more of who Jesus is and what the following Jesus life uh, looks like. So in Philippi, what's interesting, another a Bible fact for you, is that with archaeological digs, uh, they have found more inscriptions from the cities of Philippi than any other city. I stumbled saying that, but here's my point. They found these inscriptions, and it had a lot to do with hierarchy, titles, position, and rank. So here's how people were ranked. It was a, and when you rank people, for us it's kind of fascinating, right? We have lists of the top 10 or the top 20 and it's like our minds are conditioned. They say actually on social media, we don't, we don't open articles unless it's seven things to or 10 things to or whatever. I kind of keep that in mind as a preacher sometimes. Y'all know I'm tricking you now, right? You know one of my secrets. But uh, uh, there the, the was a hierarchy, it was a listing, but it, listen, now this is not just a fascinating thing. Um, it's not a pop culture thing. This was a, a culture of honor or a culture of shame. And so people, listen to me real quick. Uh, we read the word exploited in this text. We'll get to it in a second. But we read the word exploited. Uh, people get hurt when you rank and when you classify people. And when you don't see people the same, then people get hurt because there's people at the bottom. And when there's a growing gap between rich and poor, when there's people who have honor in a society and people who are shamed. Um, that's what you had here. So here's the class system that operated in the world of Philippi. At the bottom were slaves, no surprise to you there. Slaves had no rights. 
they had no freedom, they had so little power, and they were shamed. Just above slaves on the list was freedmen. A freedman had just a few rights, not much, nothing to get too uh, excited about. And above them were citizens. Most people were citizens. It was a thing of privilege uh, to be a citizen. A few protocols and um, hoops to jump through for your citizenship. Remember, Philippi was a Roman colony, so they had to be and act and do as the Romans. They had to adopt Roman ways. They had to bow uh, to the Romans who were um, brutal, um, dominant leaders of their day. Above them was the Senate. I was nervous in the 930 because we had a senator sitting right over here and I wanted him to know that we weren't talking about him uh, negatively. But uh, the Senate is not like uh, my friend Josh in the first service who serves that office for Madison and Rankin counties. It is um, 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 not something that's run for an office, but it is a level that someone reaches in the hierarchy and they've got a lot of privileges. And at the top is the king of the hill. And the king of the hill is the, the Caesar. That's the generic title, but there are many uh, throughout history in the Greco-Roman world. And that's the top guy, um, always a man at the top. And so I want to just quickly break down to give us some history, culture, and context of the scripture here of what Paul is writing to as we think about king of the hill and even death on a cross. Uh, think about um, clothing of that day. Slaves were given hand-me-down clothes. Uh, they didn't have much. Uh, it was hard for them to be warm in the winter and cool in the summer. They were just uh, given things. But freedmen had caps. Uh, Google this later. Uh, not now uh, during the sermon. But you can just punch in freedmen's cap. And it's uh, honestly awfully cute. And it'll just spark all kind of fashion statements around your house today uh, as you watch the National Football League. But a freedman's cap was uh, something kind of cool. And it just made sure people know because they didn't have a lot of resources. They weren't high on the list of honor. But at least they, people knew they weren't slaves by the cap that they wore. Um, Equestrian or citizens uh, wore togas. Some of you have worn togas to fraternity parties. And I don't want to hear about it at church. Just come to the altar at the end of church to, to confess your sins if it was anything like John Belushi and Animal House. But we're, togas for us are kind of fun and a party thing, but togas for them meant you weren't a freedman, you weren't, certainly weren't a slave, and you got, to wear, you got to wear something that says, hey, I am a citizen of the Roman Empire. Uh, equestrians, now that's kind of a funny name, isn't it? But true, the truth is they, uh, they had enough wealth in their family to buy horses. Those horses were used for show. Uh, those horses were even at times used to go into battle. So it was a thing of um, moderate uh, to growing wealth to be an equestrian. But equestrians, would, um, they would wear um, a toga and they'd also wear a, a gold ring. But the folks in the Senate would wear a toga and a gold ring, but backing up, their toga would have a purple stripe because purple in New Testament times in first century Palestine, it was a, a symbol of majesty and royalty. It said uh, that you are somebody. Uh, legal status, there are things that you read about. If you read the book of Acts, when the church just began to grow, there's really cool things like Acts 9, 31. It says they went on in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They enjoyed peace with one another. They built each other up in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. So many cool things were happening. It says they were turning uh, the world upside down. But you know what also happened? They got stoned and shipwrecked and they were flogged. And flogging was based on this. Now in Deuteronomy, it talks about a minimum of 40 flogs. Paul says in some of his writing in 2 Corinthians that I was flogged 39 times. And uh, Paul was saying, hey, they stopped just a little bit short. There was just a, um, a, an inkling of mercy here, but it was a public 
beating. It was public shaming. And slaves were flogged often. Um, at, if you were at the top, you couldn't be publicly flogged. Crucifixion was a way to kill people, to punish the criminals. And they did it as public spectacle. Guess who the only class of people who could be crucified were? Only the slaves could be crucified. Remember, you're thinking of king of the hill, but you're also thinking of even death on the cross. In this song, Paul says that Jesus was obedient. Not a, Romans didn't like that word. I don't know that I like it much, but the Romans didn't like the word obedience. Obedience is for children. Obedience is for slaves. There was something really prominent about seeding in those days. Now, seeding, uh, we don't think about it much in our days, but remember when Jesus in Matthew 23 issued seven woes, and one of his woes was, Woe to you who you like the chief seats in the synagogues. You like to be greeted with respect in the public square. Woe to you if, you're li- if you think those things are going to make you happy. Our series is How Happiness Happens. If you think those things are going to make you happy, be careful about that. Where there were people at the top who got the best seats. Friday, I'd just gotten in from a trip to the beach, and one of my good friends here in the church texted me and said, hey, do you want to go to the Jackson State game tomorrow? And my initial response was I was about to compose a text. I said, no, I'm too busy and important. Uh, but but he, he texted me back, and he goes, man, I've got, a, I've got presidential pass. And I said, yes, God has spoken. I'll go with you. And uh, I just envisioned me and Dion, you know, hanging out and stuff. But it was really cool. So this thing got me in. So I knew somebody who had this thing. And so I walk into to the stadium right here. And I'm strutting my stuff, man. I'm sitting in the press box. I'm on the 50-yard line. Here's the president of Jackson State. Here's the president of Mississippi Valley State. And at, at halftime, we get to go down up by invitation to get close to the team. And even more importantly for me, to see Sonic Boom perform just feet away. How cool was that? But it was this thing that got me in. I'm like, look at this pass. I'm important. And y'all know I'm not important, but I know somebody who is, and I got a pass, right? I was thinking about our day. How do we uh, display this uh, type of importance by seating? I was thinking about the airline industry, about about flights. Do you guys fly much? You know, if you fly, uh, there's first class, and you know that they don't call everybody else second class. Can you imagine second class passengers? Could you be second class? You're boarding now. They don't do that. They call us, and I do say us, they call us coach or economy and I am an economy guy when we were flying as a family my daughter little daughter was sitting next to me uh, and and they were calling out gold members and platinum and silver and emerald and pearl and ruby and all this she goes what are we daddy I said I think we're linoleum (laughs) or maybe cubic zirconium or something like that I was thinking through the periodic table of elements I rattled off like seven things that we probably might be but man we're just economy we're second class and uh, I was reading an article, I googled uh, this uh, this week, I was, uh, re- an article about how to cope with losing your elite status. And this guy, just to give you an idea, he's an expert frequent flyer, first class flyer. Um, he, I mean, it's, he talks about, if you've had platinum status on America Airlines last year, but only flew 30,000 miles during 2020, you'd fall to gold status on March 4th. Continental United gave, gave, gave its flyers until March 3rd, since it's still figuring out how to merge mileage plus with one pass. And he goes on and on. Apparently, it's a big deal. He gives you 11, I mean, rarely do my sermons have 11 points. He gives you 11 things to do uh, if you lose your elite status. The first one is relax. So apparently, people get uptight if they lose their elite status. You know what it was called in Rome? If you gave up your rights, it was called being humbled. It was called being humbled. 
And there's a promise that James would give. He would say, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So I don't know who needs to hear it today. If anybody's on a power trip and thinking that their power is going to make them happy. But I would say the scripture teaches. You don't have to believe this. But the scripture teaches that you and I should humble ourselves or we will be humbled. And while we're thinking of king of the hill, we're thinking of even death on the cross. And we see in Jesus the God man who humbled himself. There is this reality that I want us to focus on the balance of our time. This reality of power, of having power. Backing up just a a bit, James chapter 2 talks about seating. And status, remember he wrote this into uh, slaves and freedmen's and equestrians and citizens and senate. And even maybe the Caesar was listening. He said, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show any favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. That would be purple, by the way. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Here's a lie that we buy into that we'll be happy if we're doing better than other people around us. We'll be happy if we're given preference. We'll be happy if we have power. So in Philippians 3, by the way, this was Philippi. There was actually an inscription from a philosopher, being is being seen. I want people, I'll be happy if people see how happy I am. I'm miserable, but I'll be happy if people see. Being is who you are, it's the essence of who you are. And that was a philosophical Uh, hypothesis here being is being seen aren't y'all glad we've advanced to that uh, to to our day and it's not it's not important we're not we don't succumb to this temptation uh, like they did way back in ignorant times here's what paul would say about power i want to know christ yes to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death third chapter verse 21 who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like so that they will be like his glorious body paul had something he had something to say about power for you and i we um protein up we eat power bars and drink power aid and uh, we have power lunches with power brokers and go back and take a power nap one of my friends has a truck with a 100,000 mile limited powertrain warranty. I have no idea what that means. But we think about power, right? And all those things can be very benign, very, you know, just really not corrosive to us at all. But here's what I do know as I think about humility and happiness and what Philippians teaches us in the second chapter. That we can be power hungry. There's power grabs and power trips and power dynamics and something that's so sad uh, called an abuse of power. And a writer, as I read it and studied it this week, uh, said this about the human condition. And I'll just be honest about men in particular. He said, constant experience shows us that every man invested with power is apt to abuse it and to carry his authority too far. An abuse of power is a force of power. In the marketplace in particular, uh, included in that is churches. It shows itself through intimidation and manipulation. And this is so fascinating when I think about Jesus and his character. Excuse me, I'm having a moment. I'm preaching to me now. 
power contributes to a lack of empathy. Those in power no longer feel compelled to pay attention to the needs of others. And those who've studied the abuse of power have found this out, that it's an, undisco- uh, it's a, an uncovered, disturbing pattern, that people find their way to power through love and compassion, openness and transparency, through collaboration and shared ideas and listening. But once they taste power or found that they've been in power, those same qualities fade into the background. And they'll walk the halls or they'll rule over their family or lead in their churches and they'll speak down to people, intimidation, manipulation. They'll interrupt, they'll ignore, they'll insult. And in your small group guide, you'll probably have an opportunity this week to look at 1 Peter 5, 1 through 10. Where Peter, not Paul, writes to the church of early Jesus followers. And he says, much like a world in Philippi, and he says, this is what a leader ought to do. And I want you to look today, because I'm going to close. You'll notice maybe you're trying to follow me today and you don't see three points or four points like I've had in the past couple of weeks. I've just got one point at the end. I don't want you to miss it. It's the shocking secret that happy people get. But as Paul would write this, he's pointing us to Jesus because he had accomplished. He had gained some power. And he saw some power-hungry people who were uh, power-grabbing and they were on power trips. And, you know, there's a whole new field of study, if you will, called power dynamics. Where people in leadership, politicians and preachers and church staff and business CEOs are learning about, and I know this is a PG-13 day, but um, learning because one of the most prevalent ways of abusive power is harassment and just learning about, it's not just an age of consent or something. I mean, that's the lowest bar possible, but it's a power dynamics and people are starting to understand the reality of power dynamics and pastors for sure need to understand that. And we need to preach it from time to time. But there's power trips and power grabs and power dynamics and it leads to an abuse of power. And if you read this book, you'll see Jesus taught us, man, there will be leaders. There will be, uh, there will be, sh- there will be wolves in sheep's clothing. And the very thing that can happen is when people get power through good and godly virtues. Those things begin to fade in the background because they've grabbed power, they've tasted it, and they think that this momentary happiness is going to be enduring happiness. The message of Philippians 2 in our series, How Happiness Happens, is that we're not going to find happiness through feeling like we're powerful, like we're over others. Jesus in John 19 would say this, when Pilate, the most powerful man in the world at the time, heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Um, Who was afraid? Do powerful people get afraid? Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it weren't given if we're not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. Jesus is teaching us this. Power is temporary. And power is on loan from God. 
You say, Robert, well, you don't have four cute points today and, and you, you know, you, uh, you're preaching about power and I'm not a powerful person. Here's what I want to say to you today. You may not be a world leader. You're not Caesar. You're not, you're not Pilate. Maybe you're not in the Senate or you're not up high on the ladder. You don't feel that way, but you do wield power. You don't have to be a world leader to wield power. If you're a parent, if you're a coach, if you're a teacher, if you're a boss, if you're an organizational leader, you have power over other people. And what I want to say to you today is that that power is on loan from God. And so when you're parenting and when you're teaching and when you're coaching and when you're leading the staff meeting, uh, when you're the organizational leader, uh, for sure, God help us, when you're leading in a church, You've been given that power as a temporary trust. So steward that trust and lead it well. And Jesus is saying, knowing the source of your power will determine how you use your power. So let me stop for a second and have a heavy moment. If you have been hurt by an abuse of power, I want to speak God's grace over you. And I want to say from a pastor's heart that I am sorry. I'm sorry for that hurt. If you're the one who's abusing your power, I want to say to you, confess that as sin. Call it out. Get help and stop. Sometimes we believe a lie that it's the powerful people that are happy. And if you've wielded power over others, you know that the source is from God. It needs to be entrusted. It's entrusted to you and needs to be led really, really well. Jeremiah, the old prophet, talked to people who were hung up on their power, who thought that they could find happiness through their power. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the powerful boast of their power or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. As Lauren and the team begin to come up, I want to begin to close with Luke chapter 10, the story about the 70 that were sent out. The 72. By the way, the Bible never tells us who the 72 were. They, and the Bible never names the 72. When we get to heaven one day, I'm just convinced we're going to be able to hang out with the 72. I've got some questions for those 72. Um, the 72 return with joy. And that's a good thing, right? Jesus teaches the, they return with joy. That's a good thing. Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. We, what's he, what are they saying? The 72 are saying, we feel powerful. That's why when I, see the, when I meet the 72 in heaven, I'm going to go, y'all thought you were powerful. They had a little bit of joy, but it was momentary joy. He replied, this is the great master teacher, the one that pierces us to our hearts. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the what? The power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You ever rejoiced in the wrong thing? You ever felt happy, but then you get a sense that it's not exactly like, like this is a story about less demons. And can we all agree in church that less demons is a good thing? Like we ought, to, we ought to at least smile a little bit and have a little bit of joy. So it's not a stern rebuke that it's like this way out in left field wrongness to their joy. But he's teaching them that there's a different source of it. 
And I think he's teaching them, y'all, that when they feel powerful, they're going to turn and think it's about them. That that's a happiness that's not going to last. And that the real happiness, the one thing, because here's what I know. I, went, I told you, I went to the beach for four days. And uh, I was with my wife only, which is a tremendous joy. And I sang silly songs. And I was, we just rested and we worshiped and we had some confession and we were with other leaders who are talking about how lonely and hard it gets at times. And we just, we put our hands on would-be church planters like we were 11 years ago. And it was just, it was joy. And I, like some of y'all were texting me, I wasn't even answering your text messages. I was so happy without y'all. And it was sun and sand and all that stuff. You, you know what I'm talking about. And then I come home to death friend who's leaving somebody's not sure about living and right here in my week of sun and sand there's sorrow and so we need this message of joy it's not happy clappy we just need to know the real source of our joy and today it's in Jesus because it's not about playing and winning at king of the hill it's about even death on a cross so the big point of this sermon I told you I'd have at least one point the shocking secret that happy people learn is that happiness is freedom for the need of power let me pray for this Father thanks for today Lord would you minister to hearts power is this thing that uh, we don't do well with people get hurt Societies aren't good and just when there's 98% of the masses and 2% of the elite. And when the elite is um, holding on to power and controlling power and not divesting themselves of the power. And people get hurt by churches. Lord, I know there's people here today that are hurt by church. Hurt by a leader. I pray you would minister to us. Give us grace. Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to call you forward now, our leaders. We've got four stations, one up in the balcony for our folks up there, and then three down front in each section, left, right, and middle. As our leaders make their way to the elements, uh, we as a church family, on the final Sunday of each month, every month, every year, we practice what Jesus said and Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11 this do in remembrance we bring in our minds what Jesus has done for us and so today I would tailor it to what we've heard from Philippians 2 maybe today you come and you want to say thank you for being a savior who descended who called us to not be power hungry to grab for it but to actually realize that we can be extremely happy by divesting ourselves and putting others in front of ourselves. And by the way, Christ-like humility, for anybody that's skeptical, can I just say, Christ-like humility uh, is a beautiful thing because it affirms everyone's dignity and worth, including the one who exercised it. God is saying, you are so valuable and you are so loved. You're so you're worth everything to me. I died for you. You're worth so much. I want you to know that you're going to be happy by humbling yourself. And it's this path to happiness. So think about that as we worship. Uh, Logistically, follow the person in front of you if you believe in Jesus. 
follow the person in front of you you'll take two cups one has bread at the bottom one has juice in it and just make your way back to your seat and in your timing as Lord leads us uh, you take the bread and you take the wine and you praise your Savior